Okay. Our uh, scripture reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 23 through 27. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. All right, let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father God, again, we, uh, we thank you for this time, God. We ask that uh, as we open your word, God, the, your revelation to us, um, God, that you would use it uh, to, to open our, our eyes, open our understanding um, to the things that you have called us to uh, as your followers. Father, we pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, um, speaking to our hearts as it, as it shines uh, light on this text, um, God, that we would understand um, better what you have called us to, that we would understand who you are uh, more, that we would understand um, our own sinfulness, God, that we would understand um, the great calling that you have on our lives. God, that as we as we see this scripture rightly, God, that you would begin to mold and to uh, form and shape our hearts according to the things that we read here, um, that we would live lives um Father, that in every way are, are shaped um, to your word and to, um, to who you have called us to be. Uh, Father, as, as we've talked about in all these things, we can't do any of these things on our own. Uh, we are incapable of these things in and of ourselves. It is only by your grace um, through, and through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us that, um, that we have any hope um, in any of these things. And so, Father, um, we ask that your spirit would do his work, um, that he would... Um, shine light, that he would stir us up, that he would awaken us, that he would give us understanding, um, God, that he would convict, and in all these things that we would be more like your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so last week, um, we talked about this idea of saying, what is a Messiah? All right? Um, and you remember we were at the, the, the great passage in the scriptures where, uh, where, um, Peter gives that great confession when, when Peter is asked, uh, who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, you're some people say you're the Elijah returned. Uh, some people say you're one of the other prophets who has returned. Um, some people say that you're John the Baptist come back to life. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ of God. All right. And so we talked about how then upon that confession that Peter makes, then Jesus begins to show them that a Messiah is not what they probably were expecting. That a Messiah is more than just a teacher prophet who is to come. That the Messiah is, is less than a, a political or military leader. And that in fact, he has not come to conquer, at least not the first time around, but he has come to be rejected. He has come to suffer, and he's come to die. And his mission is not primarily, or even at all, to, to free the people from Rome. 
right? It is to free them from their sin. That's the mission. Not to restore the kingdom of Israel, but to establish the kingdom of God. And so what we do now is we, is we move to maybe the next logical step. If Jesus is a Messiah, then what does it look like to be a disciple of that kind of Messiah? If, if Jesus is an odd Messiah or something we would not expect, then it probably uh, is likely um, that to be his disciple would look differently than we might expect it to look. So we start off in this passage with another one of those little insights that I think is key, where we, where we notice a word that at least gives a little different context to the whole passage. Actually, two words right at the beginning. And it says this, And he said to all, or he said to everyone. Then the next line, it says, um, in, in, uh, at the beginning of the passage, it says, if anyone, right? He says to everyone, if anyone would come after me. Mark gives us kind of a, a, a different phrasing of it, but kind of the same point. He says, summoning the crowd along with the disciples, he said to them. Okay, and so that's an important little point. It's the kind of thing that we would read over oftentimes and, and just kind of make no specific insight about. But I think there's something uh, important to notice there. Sometimes Jesus, when he addresses uh, people in the teachings of the scripture, uh, sometimes he's addressing the disciples, right? We've already seen that happen a couple of times where it seems like Jesus basically says, I give this teaching, hey, disciples, come over here away from everybody else, and I'll tell you what's really going on, what I'm really talking about. I'll give you the inside track, okay? That happens at different times. It seems like those 12 guys have a, a specific importance a lot of time and that Jesus is specifically men uh, ministering to them. And that's true, right? He is, and they are unique individuals. But notice that he doesn't do that here. He calls everyone around to listen. He's explaining that this is a message not specifically for a select group of people, but to everyone and to all. So again, there's this tendency, I think, to read a passage like this, um, because there's some heavy stuff in this passage, right? And to write it off by saying, man, that, that's not for me, right? That's for some kind of super Christian, okay? That's for, that's for somebody who's going to go be a foreign missionary. That's for somebody who's going to be a pastor or a leader or a teacher in the church. He's not talking to me. And the answer is, no, he specifically is. He's talking to everybody. He's talking to anyone who would come after him. Anyone who would want to be a follower of Jesus. Okay? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to basically approach this passage by, by singling out Jesus' first statement and then using kind of the rest of the passage to elaborate on that statement. All right? Because Jesus basically says what it looks like for anybody who comes after him is it looks like three things. There's three clauses there, okay? He says, these are the three things that someone who wants to come and follow me must do. The first one is, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself. So what does it mean to deny ourselves? Right, we all have wants and hopes and dreams and ambitions and goals, right? We all have those things. But Christ calls us, to deny those things in some ways, to put them at least as secondary in our life. 
to bring all of those things under God's submission. The bottom line is we have to make what God wants for our lives more important than what we want for our lives. Now, again, it doesn't always mean that those dreams and desires and hopes and things like that are going to be squashed or something, right? It doesn't mean um, that just because you want them, um, God is going to make sure you never have them or something like that, right? In fact, quite the contrary. A lot of times, the very desires that he puts in our lives, those those hopes and ambitions and things like that, um, are actually used for his glory, right? He, he uses those things to steer us into the ways that we can glorify him. And so... Um, he, but the distinction is this, is that he's not just saying these things to the 12, right? He's not just saying these things to, to specific leaders. He's saying this to all of us. It means that Jesus, just like he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but your will be done. And that's what we're getting at in this passage. And, and, and we can do this in terms of many areas. And I, honestly, let's think about it, guys. Like, this is what's going on in our culture, okay? Um, the concept of denying ourselves to follow after Jesus, right? There's an issue first off there of the idea of autonomy. We don't want to do this. We don't want to follow after Jesus. And we don't want to deny ourselves because we want to be autonomous people. This is at the heart, if you think about it, of Abortion issues, LGBTQ issues, euthanasia, the, the, the exclusivity of Christ in the gospel, all of these things, the, the central point of contention in many ways, the, the, in all of those hot button kind of cultural issues is autonomy of me being able to say, you know what? Um, nothing should be able to tell me how to live my life. Okay. Not nature. Not chance, not God, not the way I was created, not the end of my life, nothing. I mean, think about it. That's what we're doing in all of these things. You say, well, I don't feel like I am the gender uh, that I was born into. What is, that t- what is that saying? It's basically saying, I don't like something that I didn't choose and have authority, having some kind of authority in my life. Um, what about euthanasia? It's the idea of saying, I don't like being not in control of my own death. I want to be the one who says when I die. And obviously we can't, we can't control that completely, but we are trying to get as much control over it as we possibly can. Why? Because it's all about us wanting to live autonomous lives to say, I don't want to be beholden to anybody. And so when the Bible calls us to deny ourselves, to be a Christ follower, we have to deny ourselves. That means you have to hand over the reins to somebody else, that you have to give somebody else authority over your life, and that that person now gets to make the core decisions that are the most central to who you are and what you do. Jesus, you know, elaborates kind of on that idea in John chapter 21, where he's talking to Peter, and he says, I assure you, when you were young, uh, you would tie your belt and you would walk where you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then after saying these things, a verse or two later, he says, follow me. Okay. Drawing that connection there again. So what's the picture? He's saying, you know what? When we're young, before we are in the faith, man, we all just want to live our lives and do whatever we want to and go where we want to. But once we are in the faith, 
the, the illustration is like a, an old person, right? You, a young person who's running crazy, right? You've seen my kids, right? You know, they're, the, James is running laps around this place, right? Um, just, just doing his thing, right? But then the other picture is this older person who can't do anything on their own. They have to be led by somebody else. And again, it's not to say that you were incapable of, it's, it, the, the picture is saying, as you mature in the faith, there's somebody else there who leads you. There's somebody else who guides you and says, you need to come this way. You need to sit over here. You need to go with me to this place. That's the picture that we have in those things. Jesus says, if you have to deny yourself. And denying yourself means denying your own autonomy. Another thing it means is denying your own position in the world. I think this was a hang-up for the gospel, uh, for the disciples specifically. Because in several instances, they have issues with that very thing. They're jockeying for position among themselves. They're trying to see who gets to be the greatest, who gets to be the left hand and the right hand man, uh, in, in Jesus' kingdom. Right? You, you, you remember those stories. But Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so this jockeying for position or status or notoriety or, or living among the right people in the right neighborhood, sending your kids to the right schools, having the right friends, being a part of the right clubs or the cliques or organizations or whatever, this is the way that the world acts. And so Jesus says you have to deny some of those things, okay? Now, again, does that mean that you're completely not supposed to be a part of any or No, it, there's, there's all kinds of ways that we... Um, that we can minister and serve in those contexts and bring the gospel into those contexts. But at the same time, they have to be decentralized from, from what we want, right? They have to, we have to deny those interests in our own lives. We have to lay those down. In one sense, if you think about it, Jesus didn't come to free us. He came to enslave us, okay? But he came to enslave us to righteousness. He came to enslave us to God. He came to enslave us to our fellow man, to where we serve him, not serving ourselves. That we would serve righteousness and not self-interest and unrighteousness. Now we have to deny ourselves for position. We have to deny ourselves in terms of, of pleasure. And that's a, that's a, that's a broad term, but some of you guys are familiar with, with the, the Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer. He's a guy that lived middle part of the last century, um, uh, cute little old man. He'd wear like these lederhosen and he lived in Switzerland and he walked around, you know, looking like a Swiss dude, right? Um, middle part of the century, he writes a book called How Should We Then Live? It's a, it's a Christian classic. And he basically talks about the idea that the modern man is driven by two principles, personal peace and affluence. That's what they're, they're driven by. They want to feel good about their lives, and they want to have a comfortable enough life. So I think we discover that in the Western world, man, the primary driving force for probably most people is hedonism. Now, you might say, wait a minute, Ash, I, got, I think I know what hedonism is. Like, hedonism is what, like, kids at Cancun and Panama City on spring break do, right? That's hedonism, right? Like like this this godless debauchery. Is, is that what you're talking about? And, and the answer is no. That is not hedonism. That's just being dumb, okay? Um, that's, not, that's not what real hedonism looks like. Hedonism is about maximizing your pleasure while at the same time minimizing your pain. 
And so, so a hedonist doesn't go out and get drunk, crazy, trashed on a Friday night because they know that they'll have to wake up Saturday morning with a hangover, right? So they're trying to maximize and minimize. They don't live sexually promiscuously because they know that that leads to STDs and, and child support payments and, and jealousy and jilted ex-lovers and jilted ex-husbands of lovers and things like that, right? And so they don't want to do that either, right? You don't live to the extremes in hedonism. Now, if you want to find hedonism, you don't go to Cancun and you don't go to Las Vegas. You know where you go? You go to the suburbs, right? The suburbs is where hedonism is at. The suburbs is where you find people who are going, I'm going to maximize my pleasure and I'm going to minimize my pain and I'm going to find this perfect medium. Personal peace, affluence, respectability, no drama, enough money to have fun, Enjoy my life. Now, here's the deal. Straight up, I want all those things, right? You probably want all those things. Um, and you'll probably look at me and say, is that wrong, right? Like, are, is that wrong, Ash? The problem is, is this. Maybe they're not wrong in and of themselves, but it's easy for peace and affluence to very quickly make us shift our focus away from more important things like truth and righteousness and justice and generosity and compassion, those things begin to fall along the wayside when our, when our intentions shift to those other things. So no, when it concerns our pleasure or our comfort, Jesus, I think, calls us to deny ourselves. All right? Are you sure that's what he's talking about, Ash? Like, are you sure he's talking about those things when he says to deny ourselves? Well, I think he does because the next thing he talks about is this idea of taking up your cross. So Jesus says, deny yourself and take up your cross daily. Clause number two, take up your cross daily. So I think I've said this before, man, we have woefully messed up that phrase of bearing a cross, okay? Because, man, we have watered it down to just goofy nonsense. So, you know, if my wife burns the cornbread on a regular basis, I'm like, oh, well, it's my cross to bear, right? You know, like I just, it's my cross to bear. If my kids can't put their socks in the hamper, like I'm like, oh, they never can get it. I guess it's just my cross to bear. These are all dumb things, right? That was not what people were thinking when you talked about bearing a cross in the first century. Okay? And it's not a Jewish concept, which is key, right? When Jesus says these things, it's not like the Jewish people are all like, oh, yeah, I get it. That's one of our little inside things. No, it's not a Jewish concept. It's a Roman concept. And the Roman concept of bearing your cross is basically the idea of a death march. Criminals who were sentenced to crucifixion were made to bear their crosses, to carry their own crosses from the prison to the place of execution. And along the way, you're getting mocked and you're getting whipped and people are hurling rotten food at you and throwing rocks at your head. And all of a sudden, the picture's a little less or a little more serious than, than cornbread and tube socks, right? This punishment, however, is forced on criminals, right? The, the, the criminals in the Roman Empire were forced to bear their crosses, to carry their crosses. But notice what Jesus' words say. Jesus says, take up your cross. You go pick it up. You choose it daily. No one's making you carry it. 
you choose that cross freely every single day. And I think basically we could, if, if we tried to change the language or something, essentially what he's saying is this. You have to recognize that following Jesus means embracing suffering sometimes. Obviously, in some places in the world uh, right now, following Christ today means death tomorrow. That's just the way many places in the world are. That's not the way it is here. Right? We don't have to worry about that right now. Okay, But the reality is, is that even in America, or at least even in the West, let's say, we are starting to see some of the things that we would normally say it'll never happen here starting to crumble. And so we've already talked before about vocationally, educationally, um, relationally, how all of a sudden these these walls are going up against Christians in different places, okay? We are coming to the point, we, we talked about it in, in, in Canada currently, there is this movement to basically say, well, uh, and if your school, your law school, your med school is not accredited by the state, then you can't get a law degree or a medical degree. And we go, yeah, that's a good thing. We don't want just any Yahoo uh, giving out medical and law degrees. But then they add on the piece where they say, oh, and by the way, you have to affirm our understanding of human sexuality. And that is a non-biblical understanding. So then what happens? All of a sudden, conscientious Christians will say, I can't affirm that. So what does that mean? I can't go to this school. I can't enter that profession. I can't be a doctor. I can't be a lawyer, okay? This isn't happening in Saudi Arabia or North Korea, right? Or, or some totalitarian state. This is happening in Canada, right? Where they have like, Maple syrup, okay? Um, and they're so nice. You betcha, right? Um, like that, it, that, it's happening in Canada, okay? So the case is, is this. Do you think that that couldn't happen here in the near future? Do you think there aren't already voices, not only in the upper echelons of liberal academia, but in everyday people who are saying, yeah, Christians shouldn't be doctors if they can't affirm these things. They shouldn't be lawyers. They shouldn't be teachers. They shouldn't be counselors. In fact, maybe they shouldn't have any job if they can't get on board with what the society said. We all remember the, the court case in, in Pacific Northwest about the, the guy who's baking cake, okay? And, and the deal that came out of that was, I don't know if you know the whole case, the guy won, right? Um, he, was, he, he, he won the case. But here was what was fascinating about the case. It wasn't just that the court said, oh, yeah, you have a constitutional right to freedom of expression and you don't have to make a cake for somebody you don't want to. That's not the main thing that came out of it. The main thing that came out of it was they said the state was obviously anti-Christian and coercive trying to shut this guy down, okay? That the, the city government, um, the, the whoever in that town was obviously doing this by their statements, by their publications. They were obviously taking an anti-Christian view, and they were basically saying, we don't want anybody doing any jobs in our city who is a follower of Jesus. If they can't get on board with our understanding of sexuality, then they should not be allowed to have a job. They should be forced out of these things. Okay, again, now you may say, well, Ash, man, that's Seattle, right, man? That place is crazy, okay? Like, it'll never happen here in East Tennessee. And the answer is, maybe. 
we may be called to take up our cross. You know, it's funny, we, we, we're so concerned about our kids going to college um, and, and getting into good schools. It may be the case that by the time my kids get to college, they won't be allowed into any of them if they maintain their Christian beliefs. Now, again, you may say, Ash, you're just, you're stirring the pot, man. This is just fear-mongering. You're just trying to scare people. And the answer is, if we hadn't seen clues of it, uh, I would say, yeah, it's fear-mongering. If I'm just making this stuff up off the cuff, but that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing it already taking place in, in little ways, testing the walls in our own country and certainly in countries like ours. So Jesus says this, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his own soul, right? What does it profit you if you get all the things you ever wanted educationally, vocationally, relationally, you get all those things and at the day of judgment, you lose everything, including your soul because you had sold out to all of these things. Suffering is temporary. The reward is eternal. Jesus says, or, or Paul says in Romans, for I considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. So what does Jesus say? He says, take up your cross, right? Embrace suffering. And notice that Jesus takes the lead in all of these things. Jesus does not come basically saying, oh, well, well, I want you to do these things, right? Jesus comes, God in the flesh, denying himself, right? He puts the will of his Father and the good of mankind above his own power, his own position, his own possessions, his own comfort, all these things that we've talked about. And then Jesus literally takes up his own cross, And so existing in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. But instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. That's how Jesus is described in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus leads the way in denying himself, in taking up his cross. And he says, now I ask that you would go and do likewise. Where I have led, where I have gone first, now you are called to follow me. And that's the third clause. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. So it seems like we deal with this issue over and over again, but I think it's helpful to notice a distinction in the language, okay? Jesus is not talking about salvation directly in this passage, right? He's talking about discipleship, literally. He's talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. He's talking about followership, okay? And so so why I think that's that's key is, is that Living as Jesus has told us to live doesn't merit you anything, right? Jesus is not telling you how to be saved. He's not telling you how to get into the kingdom. He's not saying, man, if you'll sacrifice your life and you'll follow me and you'll do all these things, then you'll be welcomed into the kingdom. That's not what he's talking about. We know how to get into the kingdom. We get into the kingdom by grace, by faith in Christ, right? That's the only way into the kingdom. There's no other way to be saved than that. However, the language is a little different here to say 
we're, we're not talking about the salvation piece. We're talking about the following piece now, right? We're talking about you're in the kingdom and Jesus is walking down the road ahead of you. What are you going to do? Well, I want to, I want to follow Jesus. I want to keep pace with Jesus. I want to be right behind Jesus wherever he goes. And so that salvation didn't cost us anything, right? It cost Jesus everything. It didn't cost us anything. But following Jesus will, right? Keeping step with Jesus will. And again, Jesus embraced these things. He embraced rejection, ridicule, deprivation, persecution. He embraced death and then said, you must come and do likewise. And you cannot be ashamed to do likewise. Remember last week when we were talking about Peter's confession and saying that, that he was, Jesus is the Christ. And then Jesus says, it doesn't mean what you think it means. Uh, I, I've come, the Pharisees and the scribes are going to reject me. They're going to uh, arrest me, persecute me, crucify me. Three days later, I'm going to raise from the dead. And, and in Matthew's account of the passage, not in Luke's, but in Matthew's account, Peter pulls Jesus aside, right? And what does he say to him? Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you, right? Peter says, we're not going out like that, Jesus. That is not what, that's not what I've joined up for. And we're not going to let that happen to you either, Jesus. That is beneath you. Um, you've come to be king and to conquer and all these different things like that, right? That's, that's why you're here. I'm not going to let these things, I, I'm, we're not going to let these things happen. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, get behind me, Satan. Okay? Uh, that's pretty harsh. Um, if Jesus has ever looked at you and said, get behind me, Satan, I would be like, well, that's, that's pretty heavy, right? Um, why does he say that? Why is he so harsh? Because he says, you are completely misunderstanding the calling of the Messiah, and you are completely misunderstanding what the calling of a disciple of the Messiah is. If we did what you wanted, Peter, we're all dead. We've all lost, right? There is no hope. There is no salvation. Every single person who's ever lived is going to spend an eternity in hell. If we stay the course with what you want us to do, Peter. And so he uses those strong words, I think, because it's, it's worthy of those strong words. Jesus is saying, man, suffering, persecution, death, ridicule, rejection, these things aren't beneath you, church. They're not something that you necessarily say, we're not going to put up with this. Jesus says, I suffered these things. I did these things. I experienced these things. I'm the king of the universe. And if I experience these things and I've asked you to come behind me, to follow behind me, then you better be ready to experience these things as well. And maybe it won't happen, right? There's certainly been eras of church history and places in, in the life of the church where things have been relatively peaceful and, and people have been turned, had their hearts turned towards God and, and, and that hasn't been the case. But Jesus says, you better be ready for that. Because if you're going to follow me, it's going to mean denying yourself and taking up your cross. And he gives some consequences to that, right? Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Man, again, that's one of those passages that we just don't like reading. 
We don't like that idea. We don't want to think about it. We want to think about a God who is, who is, um, gracious to the extent that we can just pretty much do whatever we want to. And man, he is going to forgive because that's what God does. And that, and, and, and in a, in a, in a sense, that's, I mean, there's truth to that. I mean, God is so forgiving, so gracious, right? So accepting, right? God is always willing to bring, allowing his people to come back. And yet every once in a while, Jesus just says, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Because anybody that's ashamed of me and of the gospel and of, of my father, then on the day of judgment, we will be ashamed of that person. What's interesting to me, when Jesus says this to his disciples, I got to think it went over their heads, right? They're basically like, this doesn't mean, what are you taking up your cross? Like, I don't, what are you talking about, Jesus? You're the Messiah. This is all going to be good. But by the time Luke writes these things down, a generation, a half a generation later, whenever it is, by the time he sends this letter, this gospel to, to Theophilus, it's very clear what Jesus is talking about. It's very clear what denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus means. Because they've seen it at that point. They've seen it in the life of Christ. They've seen it in the lives of those early martyrs, people who have already been persecuted and imprisoned and hunted down for their faith. And so by the time Luke writes this, man, they get it. They get what the cost might be. And so I, I'll close with just saying this, along with that last point. And, and maybe it sounds silly, right? But if you want to follow Jesus, you have to follow him. Right? If you want to follow Jesus, you have to go where he goes. You have to act how he acts. You have to believe what he believes. You have to say what he says and teach what he teaches. You have to love what he loves. You have to love the Father and you have to love the church. You have to love the gospel. You have to love the word. You have to love the lost, right? You have to love sinners who are coming to repentance in a, in a slow and stumbling and goofy process. Right, You have to love faith if you want to follow Jesus. That's what he calls us to. He says, if you want to be my follower, you have to do these things. And so what I want to do is as we close today, um, I just want us to kind of think about some of these, these things in our own lives. Right? How much of our lives are spent indulging ourselves, not denying anything, but indulging ourselves, how often in our own lives do we say, man, I think Jesus wants me to do this, but that's going to be a hassle, right? That's going to be difficult. Uh, man, I'm going to have to deal with all kinds of nonsense if I do that. I don't want to take up that cross, right? I want one of those easy crosses, something that I can do and feel, have a sense of personal peace, right? Like I'm doing a good job and I'm helping Jesus out. Working for the kingdom, but just nothing that costs me too much. Nothing that will be a burden on me. Nothing that the weight of it would be crushing if it were not for the fact that Jesus Christ was there at my side, holding me up by his power, strengthening me and encouraging me by his own life in his own power. I think the case is, is that many of us, myself included, have not followed Jesus. We are believers in Jesus. 
Jesus has saved us, but we have let Jesus walk down the road and go on past the hill. And so now we are saying, well, I know he's up there, and I don't want to fall behind so much that, like, I don't even know where he is, but I'm okay taking my time. I don't need to keep pace with him, right? I think we're all in that place. And I think it's probably going to get harder to stay in that place in the world that we are living in. Maybe not. Maybe it'll be another four, eight, 12, 20, 50 years of the way it's always been, right? But we'll see. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Just do some, allow God to speak to you in this time. Um, Ask God to show you those places, the places that you are indulging self, the places that you are refusing to take up a cross, a cross that you feel like Jesus probably wants you to carry, but you don't want to carry it, and places where you know you just need to follow him, to keep pace with him, to go where he goes, and do what he does. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, in your grace, God, help us to follow Jesus Christ. God, help us to understand the cost of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. God, thank you that it cost us nothing to enter into your kingdom, to be saved, to be welcomed into your family. God, thank you that it cost us nothing to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, to know you as our Father. Thank you that Jesus has done all of these things already, that he has lived a perfect life in our place, that he has suffered a death in our place, that he has conquered death and hell and sin and Satan and the grave by the power of who he is, not because of anything that we are or we have done, God. We thank you for that grace. But God, we ask also that that you would help us to rightly count the cost in our own lives. As, as you call us into greater and greater service, as you call us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow you, God, that you would show us the places that you want us to follow. God, that you would show us the things that are holding us back and you would show us the things that we need to pick up and carry, the ways that we need to serve and sacrifice, God, and love those around us and work for their good and not our own. God, help us to do those things. We are all bad at it. God, our modern world and our affluence, God, they seduce us and they draw us into a false sense of security. God, a false sense of normalcy, a false feeling of what it is to be good and decent and righteous in the world. 
God, help us to, to walk away from those things, um, to serve you, God, and to put you first in every aspect of our life. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
sings, my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Amen. Good to see you. Glad that we're back together. Glad that we are in each other's presence again. Getting to see each other on uh, on a regular basis. Tim, congratulations. Uh, Tim and Janessa got engaged this last week, which is super exciting um, for all of you out there in the in the internet sphere who hadn't heard about that. I think probably everybody has. Maybe some people haven't. So congratulations on that, man. We're excited for you guys uh, and looking forward to to God bringing you guys together. Um, let me close this with a benediction as you go. Uh, hear this word to you. And, and, and again, we talk about a benediction, man. It's not exactly, it's, it's like a blessing, right? It's not exactly a prayer, um, although we are asking God for something. Um, uh, but but it's, it's, it's a chance for me to, to uh, uh, speak these things uh, on your life, okay? And so um, I hope that you receive them that way. Uh, and, and, and we go back again to this, this Levitical blessing. Um, at the, at all the way back in the Old Testament. It's out of my head. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I looked at that baby and I went, there's just a baby over there. <laughs> May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week. <laughs>